Kids can be dismissed to promised land. That was not a real vote of confidence, was it? We're not going to have to stay for this, are we? No. Paul's life was tough enough that he had to factor in the future in order to survive what he was experiencing in the present. And in the heart of his letter to the Corinthians, his thoughts move past the grave towards eternity. And we get to follow along. Look what it says, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. He writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while We are still in this tent. We groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's two ways to understand this passage. There's an obvious way, and there's a less obvious way. Let's start with the obvious, move to the less obvious, and then we'll move back to the obvious. We're going to start with a heavenly body, and then we'll move to talk about a heavenly home, and then we'll move back to talk about a heavenly body. Um, When it says um, the tent that is our earthly home, the obvious understanding of that, it refers to our physical body. A tent is an image of something sufficient for its purpose. Um, You know, a tent is possible. How many of you like to tent? It's, It's possible to stay in a tent. You wouldn't want to live in a tent forever. And so the same thing with a body. It's, it's kind of like that. Um, It's impermanent, subject to wear and tear. The verb translated is destroyed, literally means to tear down, and is appropriate when you think of striking a tent. We have a very easy tent, easy to put up, easy to take down. You just kind of take the things, you undo it, flip this, and that's the image of um, this tent being destroyed. What it seems to indicate, as soon as our earthly tent, this dwelling in which our spirit exists, when this is taken down, when it is um, destroyed, it seems it, what it says, we, uh, we enter a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So 
death then for somebody who understands why Jesus came is moving out of a temporary dwelling and into a permanent one in the sense then that we will not never be homeless. When we move out, we move in. That's what Paul seems to say. But what he goes on to say is, meanwhile, we groan. And in verse 2, for in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Groaning is two-pronged. We, we groan for two reasons. One, we groan with a grin on our face, and one, we groan with a frown on our face. And both of them are our experience as we think about moving towards death. It's, it's not happy and not sad. It's not sad and not happy. It's both. It says we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We want to put on heaven. We want to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling to be on the other side. But it says as well, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we, we be, that we would be further clothed. And what it describes death as being unclothed. Think of what happens at death. What happens at death, we come to a place where our spirit and our body separate. Our body stays behind. Our spirit moves out in that sense. And Paul describes that sense of our spirit, who we are, our soul, moving out of our body as our spirit being unclothed. Um, for a Jew, the idea of an unembodied spirit didn't make much sense. For a Greek, it made all kinds of sense. Greeks and Romans, they had the idea about spirits flying around. But for a Jew, they they felt that the body and the soul belong together. Um, we So what Paul describes then, the groaning is that we want to move in, but we don't want to move out. We want to get to heaven, but we don't want to leave this body to get there. That's what he describes. And so we groan when we think of being there. Oh, and when we think of moving out, uh, the groaning is, is kind of ambivalent then. Um, we'll come back to the, the idea about groaning. Paul touched on death and dying in his previous letter to the Corinthians. Look what it says. See, you worship folder. First um, Corinthians 15 says, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable and we should be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, I tell you, 
this brother's flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We often assume that if Adam and Eve had made better choices, they would have qualified for heaven. That they made a bad choice, and that's what ended up disqualifying them. The fact is, before they had a moral problem, they already had a mortal problem. What it says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So it wouldn't have been enough if they had been perfectly obedient. The flesh and blood that they existed in, that's not going to enter the kingdom of God. They needed to be clothed with that which is imperishable. And that's what it it describes. So how was it supposed to happen? Uh, What we know, biblically, Jesus was eternally predestined to open the door to heaven. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he wasn't thinking, I hope that they succeed. God had already determined that his son would need to come to earth. You don't get eternal life by obeying, even if you're Adam and Eve in the garden. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus was already dispatched in God's mind as death's terminator before death even came to exist. Uh, What it says in 2 Timothy, just listen, it's not in your worship folder. Paul writes, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, God had already indicated that our ability to go to heaven would not be based on our obedience, but Christ's obedience. That's what it indicates. It goes on, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And it really is interesting Death's terminator was dispatched and purposed before death even existed. God wasn't surprised by what happened in the garden. It wasn't, I have to go to plan B. Their being obedient was never plan A. And Paul writes, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Again, um, when you think of Adam and Eve, And what God introduced them to, they said, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and don't eat it. But the tree of life wasn't there. God didn't say, and by the way, this is the tree of life, and if you eat from this, you get to live forever. I mean, if he'd given them that choice, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. This is the tree of life. If you eat this, you get to be with me forever. That's that's not much of a brainer. It's not, what door are you going to take? I'm going to take door number two. I'll take, eat from the tree, I get to live forever. The fact is, you don't get eternal life by eating fruit. You get eternal life by placing your faith in the one who is eternally predestined to open the door of heaven to us. That's Jesus. And that's why our entry into heaven, it'll talk about those whose names are written in the book of life. Your name doesn't get written in the book of life by your compliance with the commandments any more than it was the true for Adam and Eve. It was true for Adam and Eve. Our ability to enter eternal life is predicated on one thing, whether we are included in what Christ did. 
when we put our faith in what he did. Then that's what puts our names in the book of life. Um, Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We've talked about this before. In the Old Testament, there's not a lot of immortality there. Do you agree? I think there's a place in... Um, I know that my Redeemer lives, Job ends up saying, and in the end, he will. And he seems to indicate some sense of immortality, but in the Old Testament, immortality is in the shadows. That's why they believed that if you die, that's it. There was no hope of heaven in the Old Testament. Jesus brings life and immortality to light. Because of Jesus, we understand that this life is not all there is. And on the far side of the grave, and we'll find it, there's going to be a resurrection, and there will be those who will enter into eternal life and live forever, because that's what happened to Jesus. And those who believe in him, what happened to Jesus will happen to those who believe. Uh, anyway, Paul goes on to describe the path to eternal existence in in. 1 Corinthians 15, but before this, he we find the nursery verse. You've heard about this before, right? You know the nursery verse? Verse 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now I'm getting, I'm getting. Okay, let's move on. Move on. Nothing to see here. Uh, back to eternity, um, it says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Um, it talks about, we shall not all sleep, and what it describes then, somebody who is a believer in Christ, death is called, and what a great metaphor, falling asleep. Faith in Christ, death is falling asleep and waking up to the person who loves you more than anyone ever has. That's what it has, and so it gives us the sense then. Death is our eyes close, and then they open into and it's going to describe it in a verse that we're going to we're going to look at um, how does Jesus open the door to heaven um, it goes on in verse 56 we're just noticing a few things before we go on it says it has an interesting statement um, before you look at it it's going to talk about the power of God and the power of sin okay it's going to say the power of sin is blank. And the power of God is blank. What do you think it's going to say? The power of sin is... Good. Huh. Power of God is... Let's see what it says. The sting of Seth is... The sting of Seth... The sting of Seth is Brett. No, so that's Brett's, Brett's son anyways. So, okay. The sting of death is sin, 
and the power of sin is the law. Isn't that interesting? Sin is not just an act, it's a power, biblically. And that which empowers sin is law. If you put over someone's head, you're blessed if you obey, and you, you're cursed if you disobey, that doesn't decrease the power of sin in your life. It ratchets it up. And that's why, that's what he says, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, and therefore, if Jesus is going to break the power of sin in our life, what is he going to do? He's going to annul the law so that we're not under it anymore. And that's what, that's what ends up happening. And so, the power of sin is the law. And that sounds strange, but it's pretty straightforward here. And Paul says it all over the place. Um, let me read a verse, and it's going to talk about the power of God. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God, and the law is the power of sin. You know what the gospel is? That by being buried, crucified with Christ, and buried with Christ, and raised with Christ, we are no longer under the law. The law is in effect as long as we live. So here's the deal. If we are alive, we are under the authority of Old Covenant law. There's only one way to get out of it, by dying. And we have two choices. We can die, and that's not going to help us very much because that's going to be it. Or we can put our faith in the fact that Christ has died. And what happens then? When we put our faith in Christ, that's why baptism is such a good image for what happens when we put our faith in Christ, because in baptism, you kind of go under the water. You kind of, you do. You go under the water, and that's like being united with Christ in his death. And Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose above the level of the jurisdiction of law, right? So Jesus rose to a place where law has no more jurisdiction over him. So what ends up happening is this. We, through faith, it's like we're united with Christ in his death and his resurrection, so he's above the level of law, and we are above the level of law as well. And you know what we need to do then is believe it. God is not counting your compliance with the commandments. That's not the way salvation works. Salvation works when we put our faith not in what we do, but what in Christ did for us. Interestingly, the more we put our faith in that, it's not that we don't sin, but the power of sin as a controlling, it starts to turn down. And the power to love begins to increase. It's not something that happens all of a sudden. Uh, but it's, uh, the power of sin is law, the power of God is the gospel. Uh, we're going to come back to this, and so we're going to take a less obvious thing really quick. There's another way to interpret the passage, 
And I think that Paul might have had both of them in mind. Let me show you what I mean. Um, it says, we know in, in verse 1, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, literally, the tent that is our earthly home, literally, is the house of the tent. We know that if the house of the tent is destroyed, we find that earlier in the Bible, that exact phrasing. And it's interesting what it means. Let me just read this to you. It's, anyways, it's talking about the time of King David. And at that time, David really wanted to build a temple for God. But it wasn't God's purpose that David do it. It was God's purpose that his son would do it. Solomon ended up building a temple. For David's time, it was the Ark of the Covenant was housed in a temporary structure, and it was called the House of the Tent. And it was, remember, the, in, when, they, when Moses went through the thing, they had to build a tent for the Ark of the Covenant to go within. It was a portable structure. You took it down and built it and put it up. When they got into the Promised Land, it ended up moving into a more permanent tent, but still a tent. And it was called the House of the Tent. So what, and so it's what it says in First Chronicles, David and Samuel put people in charge of guarding it. And this is what it says. So they and their sons were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, that is, the house of the tent. So the place where God's presence was in the ark was called the house of the tent. Um, this is the location of the ark before Solomon built the temple. When Paul talks about the house of the tent being destroyed, we could be thinking about how Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. Again, let me explain it a little bit. Here's remember what Jesus said: "I will destroy this temple." Well, that's in your worship folder. Look what look what it says in Mark fourteen. Look what it says, Mark fourteen. Jesus said, "I will destroy this temple." that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another, not made with hands. Notice, made with hands, not made with hands, house of the tent, it's the same wording. So here's what it could be describing. We've talked about how Paul in this passage is conscious of Gentiles, but he's very conscious of Jews as well. And when it's talking about those who are jars of clay, we talked about those as being Jewish Christians. And what he might be indicating then, that he might be thinking of Jewish Christians who in being exiled from Israel are kind of naked. And they're, they're like people without a country. I've described it. I'm not going to go into the, I made a map of this place, and we divided it into Gentiles and Jews, and there were there were Jews who lived in the north, and Jews who lived in the middle, and Jews who lived in the south, and God picked the Jews who lived in the north to be the ones who would be, who would embrace Christ and would understand him. Those in the middle really didn't, those in the south didn't. And so what ended up happening, he took the ones, and we've just talked about this, ones from the north, and dispatched them into the Roman Empire. Now, when those Jews who were in the north, when you were dispatched into the Roman Empire, you left behind 
your neighborhood, and your livelihood. And those individuals, we can understand, they're like people without a country. They're not really embraced by Gentile culture. Gentiles don't fully accept them, neither do Jews. You know who they ended up being? People without a country. And what Paul is writing, and he could write, that um, there is a sadness then that the Jews who were exiled out into the Roman Empire, there was a sadness they experienced, groaning. You were people without a country. This was not your home. This is your home, but you were forced out of it. You are no longer able to enter the temple. You're heretics. And so Paul has these individuals in mind who were dispatched. And, and what he then is describing, he could be thinking of, well, this is what it says in Hebrews 11. Describes in Hebrews 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. And it talks about the Jews in the hall of faith. Anyways, listen to what it talks about their attitude. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. When these people went into there, they, would, they had a lot of things promised. They had heaven promised, but they really didn't have their best life now. Would you agree? And that's what we find. Those to and through whom Christ reveals himself oftentimes have difficult lives. And that's why Paul is pointing these individuals ahead to not only, well, let me go on, which is what it says, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let me tell you what people like this have to do, and people like us have to do as well. It's not just for Jews, it's for Christians. Three words, welcome, admit, and long. It says they welcome God's promises from a distance. Welcome God's promises from a distance. They did not receive what had been promised, but only welcomed. Here's what happened. God gave them promises. And they were looking to the to receive those promises, and they were looking forward to it and all the things that would happen and but they didn't receive these promises while they were living on earth. They welcomed these promises from afar. Then they admitted, welcome, admit. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. This is our world in our home, but not really. And that was very true for first century Jewish Christians. They really didn't have a home, but we understand that as well, don't we? This is not fully our home. This world is not our home. We welcome God's promises from afar. We're not going to get everything God promises on this side of the grave. In fact, we're going to have to wait for the other side of the grave to get. We have to, in that we welcome his promises from afar. We admit that they were, were aliens and strangers. And here's what they did long. Welcome, admit, long. They longed for a better country. It was very true of first century Jewish Christians. 
This wasn't their country. They had to leave their country. And in that sense, they were naked. And what Paul is writing then is about when, they, well, Jesus said when the temple is destroyed, there was a promise that there would be a new one. Look what it says. Read with me. And I'll read it. And then, again, this is the less obvious one, but we'll tie this back. We'll move back to thinking about death and dying. And but look what it says in Revelation 20. It's in your worship folder. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We'll talk about this a little bit. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. You get the thing? A building from God dressed as a bride. When Paul talks about putting on and putting off, he's talking about the body, but he's talking about a city as well. He's talking about the destruction of the earthly Jerusalem and the descent of the heavenly one. That would have been your hope especially your hope in the beginning, those who don't have a Jerusalem to go to. Again, there's application for all of us here. There's an application for Christians in general. I think there is an application for Jewish Christians in particular at the time. The Again, it goes on. Then I saw verse 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I love this part. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and this applies to everyone who's there. Now the dwelling of God is with, is with men, and he will live with them. What happens when God lives with a person? kind of things is it going to say when God lives in the place that you are? How it describes it. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Look what it says. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. When it describes what it's like to be in a place where God is, there's no more tears. There's no more mourning. There's no more grief. There's no more pain. 
You know what? Would you agree with me? When we think of that, a place like that, oh, oh, groaning. You want to be in a place like that? That's what Paul's describing. The groaning of anticipation. It is going to be phenomenal. And we groan longing to get there, but between this and that place, if Jesus should come back, we get to go right away. But if not, we have to die. We have to move out. Uh, uh, We don't want to breathe our last. We don't want to experience the pain, the fear. When Paul talks about taking off and putting on, it has to do with clothing. But you know what Paul describes Jerusalem as, or in Revelation, not Paul, Revelation is described as a woman beautifully dressed, coming down, beautifully dressed for her husband. Um, The idea of clothing would have profound meaning, wouldn't you agree, for these Jewish Christians who are jars of clay, transmitting the new covenant to Gentiles, they're given over to death so that we might experience eternal life. Uh, Let's broaden it out now. Let's think of, because I think Paul probably has both in mind. I think he had Jewish Christians in mind in particular. I think he has all Christians in mind as well. A couple things. Um, Do you notice that those whose names those whose names are written in the book of life, I don't think they get judged. If, if your name is written in the book of life, you get to go in the city. If it's not, you get judged according to what you've done. Um, it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We'll talk about that. How do you get your name written in the book of life? By, by Sunday school attendance by giving 15%, right? By keeping holy the Lord's day. By not stealing, by not committing adultery, by not bearing false witness, right? You know how you get your name written in the book of life? By put your faith in, is, I've talked about this before. Let's say, I'm gonna step down. Let's say this, this chair represents Jesus. And um, you think that chair will hold me up? Will that chair hold me up? Why isn't holding me? Why isn't it holding me up? I'm not sitting in it. Let that chair represent Jesus. Eternal life is given to those who transfer their trust from what they do or don't do to what Jesus did. Now I'm putting my faith in the chair. Putting my faith in the chair is putting the weight of myself into it. I've talked about this before. For a long time in my life, if you had asked me early on, not a long time, the first part of my life, if you had asked me, Mike, when you get up there, you're going to go to heaven? I would have said, I hope so. And, you, and if you would ask me this question, and if God would ask me, why should I let you in, what would you say? You know what I would have said? 
because I go to church all the time, and I did, because I am there when the only other people who are there are 80 and 90 year, 60, 70 and 80 year old people. And I go in the first, I go before school during Lent. And I am an altar boy. And I plan to be a priest. And I, and I, and I, and I. My pronoun, the pronoun is evidencing who I'm trusting in. Who am I trusting in for eternal life? Am I sitting in Christ? I'm sitting on my chair. What I do, what I don't do. Then I heard, and I understood, and I didn't like it at first, because I had been working really hard. <laughs> then I came to a place where I understood eternal life isn't given to those who put their faith in what they do, but put their faith in what Christ did. I remember that about back in 1972, I came to a place where I said, you know, God, I, I kind of, I'm not sure if I like this real much, but I understand that I need to put my faith in what you do. And so I, I put my faith in, I really meant it. You came to die for me, and now I put my confidence for my eternal existence in you. That's when I put faith in him. And that's what faith, that's what faith in him means. It means put your weight on what he has done. Um, when I did that, I don't know how this works. For some of us, it's not a point in time. It just is a matter of where your faith is. And if your faith is in him, there's a place up there with a book on it. There's a book. And your name's written in it. I think, I don't know how that works. That's what happens. That's how names get written in the book of life. Um, it talks about the lake of fire is the second death. Uh, we're going to talk about that lake of fire. Yeah, so anyways, I've heard this though. Um, the lake of fire is the second death. And I think that that's what that means. It's annihilation. I don't, because, well, look, but I'm, I knew I was going to get into this. Anyways, of course, I'm going to have to. Um, look at the, look what it says in verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, whatever it is, it's not a place where people cook. Would you agree? I mean, death is not like, it could be. You see the commercial where death is the grim reaper, and you can see death is the grim reaper kind of up there with the scythe and frying like a piece of bacon. That's not the point. That's not what it looks like. Death in Hades, it's not a place where things are tortured. It's a place where things are annihilated. And again, we're not going to go into this. I, well, maybe I'm not. Um, a lot of people have this sense that when the Bible describes hell, and it describes it as torment, but the torment of hell is not a physical torment. How can death in Hades be tormented? Would you agree with me? It's thrown as, how could they be, it's not torment. It's, it's not the point. It's, it's about, and in fact, when it describes in Luke about weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is the context where it talks about, there's a parable about those who come and they're weeping and gnashing. They get to the gate, they get to the door. 
and they expect to come in. And they're barred because their names aren't written in the book of life because they're depending on what they do. And it says they weep and gnash their teeth. What's the weeping and gnashing of teeth? It's not somebody cooking. It's somebody saying, I can't get in. I, I, I always thought I'd get in. I always thought I was doing more than everybody else. I, I gave and I, and I went to church and I did all the things and, and I should be able to get in and they're going to come and, and they're not going to gain entrance. And that's what the weeping and gnashing of teeth is about. That's the sense of it. It's not physical torture. We've talked about this before. The Bible has a lot to say. Paul never mentions hell. Never. Not once. I'll be straightforward. I think there is hell does exist. But I think the lake of fire, I think this describes it. It's a place of annihilation. It's a place where things cease to exist. I don't believe that eternally there will be a contingent of people being subjected to endless punishment by God. I don't believe it. And, and, and Paul never says it. Jesus talked about hell, but it was in the context of... Anyway. And you know what? We have all different kinds of views here. Most people, and, and many of you, are going to say, Mike, I disagree. That's okay. That's okay. You don't have to agree with me, but I'm telling you what I think. And I can base it biblically. That makes sense? And again, I don't want you to feel, oh, Mike, I'm on the other side of this. I, that's really, really. Can we agree with this, though? Those who put their faith in Christ are going to get to a really good place. Can we say that together? And can, can, you, can you hear it in yourself? Oh. oh, I want to move in, but I don't want to move out. That's what I think we can all agree on that. Um, the bliss of eternity is the reason for the groaning. Um, whether Jew or Gentile, this is what God intends. Um, either way, whether you're waiting for a heavenly body or waiting for a heavenly home, meanwhile we groan. Um, it's natural to feel both joy and fear when facing death. And I just really quick, and then we're going to be done. It's natural to feel both joy and fear when facing death. Um, I, I was sitting next to a guy once who was, he had heard that his, um, his illness was terminal and inoperable. And he told me a story about, um, I was there with a few family members and he knew that he didn't have long. Um, and so he told me a story about sitting by the bedside of somebody who he had come to visit. And this individual who he was visiting had learned that he has a terminal disease and was close to death. So this friend that I was visiting was telling me, recounting the incident and telling me about how he sat down next to this individual's bed and, and he was terrified. And this man put his hand on the arm of this friend of mine 
And, and his friend said, I'm sorry, I have to go. And as he was telling me, he talked about having to peel this guy's finger off of his arm and peeling it one at a time. And he's telling me this. And he started to sob because he felt afraid. And I, and I said to him, I said, listen to me. I know you. You, that will not be your experience. I know that you have faith in Christ because I've seen it. That's not going to be now. You might be temporarily inconvenienced. You will not be terrified. And I could see him go, and he started to lean back and relax. It's scary facing death, isn't it? You know what the problem is? Some people feel like if I'm a Christian, it's unchristian to be afraid of death. What we find in this text is it is perfectly natural to both fear death and to want to go to heaven. Amen? Can we, can we agree? It, both of them. Just so, so if you think towards the place where, Mike, you know what? I'm kind of afraid of. I am too. I don't want to die. I don't want to feel the, my, I don't want to have to try to catch my breath or feel this invasive disease. And I tell you what, I, I can feel it. Ah. You feel that in you? Ah. Tell you what, though. I can't wait to get to the other side. Ah. Oh, and that's what Paul talks about. Groaning is both a groan of joyful anticipation and fearful anticipation. Um, hard enough to deal with grief, isn't it? Without having to put guilt on it as well. So I guess this is what I'm saying. And come on up. Let me sing a closing song. Perfectly natural. Um, when we think about death and dying, it's going to be great to get there, but it's perfectly natural to not want to move out. Yeah, you've got it before we get there. Father, thank you for um, bringing life and immortality to life through the gospel and uh, all that that entails, dispatching your firstborn ones to bring us news and the hope of eternity, whether you're first century Jewish Christian, first or 20th, first century Gentile Christian, it's the same. You would have us look toward past the grave to the time where we get to be with you, and everything you say about it, it is going to be phenomenal. Um, almost hard to believe, except Jesus rose bodily and he's there. He's not here. So we look forward to the day when we might be in that place where you live, and the place where you love is, it live is a place that we want to be. Thank you for Christ and for the hope of eternal life that comes to those who embrace what he did. Thanks for rescuing us from the curse of law and giving us a new covenant. Um, help us to see it more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.